I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Line Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Alexander. And I chatted with Mr. Oh, not Mr. The Doctor. He's a doctor. Dr. Christopher Ryan. He is the writer of the New York Times, the New York Times, New York Times best-selling book, Sex at Dawn. Uh, this book's pretty fantastic. If you haven't read it already, uh, it's challenging our perspectives on human sexuality and gets into the evolution there of. Um, is it a genetic disposition for us to be monogamous or is that a choice? Kind of like choosing to be a vegetarian. Uh, really, really interesting book. I would suggest anybody check that thing out. Got another book coming out called Civilized to Death. Uh, you kind of get the idea what that is. Our civilization is having an impact on our health. Think about it, man. What's going on now? Um, also, the host of Tangentially Speaking, one of my absolute favorite podcasts. I think I've listened to darn near every episode. I would suggest anyone out there get on top of that ASAP. He has got a he's a wealth of knowledge. This guy. Um, he has traveled the world. He has really done quite a bit of self work. I would say pretty grounded individual. I greatly, greatly appreciate his perspectives on things. And those perspectives have helped along or influenced my perspectives on myself, on reality, and everything. So thanks, Chris. Very, very kind of you, man, even though you don't realize you're doing that to the world. It's very, very sweet. Um, In this conversation... We talked about a lot of stuff. Chris is a pretty fantastic uh, storyteller, um, and we got into some of those stories. Talked about him. What? He ran a motorcycle into an elephant in Bangkok or something. I don't know. A lot of really interesting stuff. We got into suicide. We got into the power of telling a narrative in your life. Life is a story. Be the hero of your story. I've only got this one life, and it's not about getting rich. It's not about getting famous. It's about... It's about learning, you know, it's about seeing, it's about doing things that challenge my conception of who I am and what reality is. And the best thing I had ever done up to that point, two, two best things I'd ever done up to that point um, in terms of pursuing that goal were travel and hallucinogens, mm. to be honest. Sure. And uh, so I was like, you know what? I'm going to just keep doing these, you know? <laughs> so I sewed a bunch of acid into my backpack and I traveled, you know? And what if I could demonstrate that people, a person who speaks several different languages from childhood, in those different languages is a different person physiologically. Nice. That would prove that language creates psychology in some way. I think people are living their lives as a presentation for others. Really super interesting. Honest guy, this is one of my favorite conversations I've had on this podcast, so I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, be sure to subscribe, share, leave comments on them iTunes and them Stitchers. Those comments, oh man, they make me so happy. It... Um, 
makes doing this show worth it. At this point in time, uh, I don't have any sponsors. I just do this stuff because it's, uh, I enjoy it generally. Uh, so those comments, greatly, greatly appreciated. Uh, be sure to check out the website, aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there you will find the blog. You will find hundreds of free videos on self-care practices and functional movement, uh, e-books, courses on how to make that body move well. Um, and then as well, the self-care kit. Foam roller with a couple different size mild fast release balls, a uh, heavy-duty band with a door anchor so you can decompress those joints of yours, get your sweat on, get your workout on, girl, and uh, keep that body moving phenomenally for the rest of your life as long as you use that little bugger. All right, here we go. Dr. Christopher Ryan. Thank you, sir, for coming on, pow. Oh, yeah, the other thing. <laughs> uh, this is part two of a two-part podcast. Check out the first part on Tangentially Speaking, which is Chris' show, as I said, and uh, he's chatting to me about stuff. We're just going back and forth like a couple of girls in a park in Portland. It was fantastic. And then there was one more thing. I was chatting about multiple personalities in this, and I was just so darn confused thinking that uh, if a person had multiple personalities, that schizophrenia was an umbrella term for that. I was way off since then. Chris corrected me, and I did some research on my own and uh, have a newfound appreciation for the difference between schizophrenia, multiple personalities, bipolar, etc., etc. Very interesting stuff. All right, here we go. Thank you so much. Enjoy the conversation. Bye-bye. Align Podcast. So, this is a different type of episode than I have ever done. So, if at any point I flub up or do something completely ridiculous, I apologize in advance. I'm here with Christopher Ryan out in what park are we at, Chris? Laurelhurst Park. Laurelhurst Park. And um, we just finished part one of this episode, which will be on Tangentially Speaking podcast, which is Chris's podcast. And, uh, we were talking. What were we talking about? We were talking about everything. We some ridiculous T.S. things. You got, hit, T.S. you got hit by an elephant or something. I almost. <laughs> I almost. What happened was I was in northern Thailand in Chiang Mai. This is a long time ago. This is like '88 or something. And I rented a motorcycle and um, went off and rode for like a week by myself through northern Thailand. I did this big circuit um, around pretty much along the border with the, the highest mountain in Thailand is somewhere near Chiang Mai. So mm-hmm. I, first I went up to the top of this mountain, right. which is like 3,000 feet or something. Yeah, yeah. It's no big deal. And then um, I went over to the border with Burma, rode up along that, then uh, along the border with Laos and the Mekong. <clears throat> anyway, at some point on that trip, I came around a corner going a little too fast, and there was an elephant in the middle of the the road he was they were using you know a working elephant to move logs and stuff right and he was just standing there sideways and you know i hit the brakes and luckily i you know was pretty good on a bike but i came to a stop probably you know two feet away from that elephant wow and so you know obviously that stuck in my head for a while and then i had a motorcycle in spain for years and when i was on that bike in spain i just always every time there was a blind spot in the road up ahead, I just imagined there was an elephant there, you know? <laughs> so that elephant probably saved my ass because, you know, anytime I was going around a curve, it's like, dude, if there's an elephant, 
you know, you got to be able to stop. What year were you out there? Was that because I know now I in was Thailand? in Thailand. Yeah, I was in Thailand just recently, like a couple of years ago or something like that. And Thailand's very like established now. Yeah. I hear amazing things about Burma. Is that where is that like? What I've, I've never been to Burma. Um, I was in last time we were in Asia. Cassie and I traveled in Asia for a little over a year and we were in Laos then. Nice. That was 2004, I think. Okay. Which seems like very recent, but it was new. What's that? Eleven years ago, something like that. Yeah, we're due. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, but yeah, Laos was really nice because it was kind of fresh and it totally. had just opened up, and people were still happy to see you. They hadn't been worn down by the throngs of tourist assholes yet. Right. But I like Thailand. I've been to Thailand lots of times over the years. That was the first time the the elephant incident was the first time which i think was like 88 something like that so you have something that i so i've been i've been following your podcast which i would suggest anybody out there you know mom dad all the listeners (laughs) not my mom or dad please (laughs) anyone else's mom your podcast honest to god um has actually changed I don't want to say change my life because that's very cliche, you know, but your perspective on reality and your perspective on the world, um, I very greatly appreciate it. You know, it comes from a really grounded place, you know, and something that I've noticed from that, you know, it's very easy to have this, this superficial perspective and kind of have all the right words to say and have like the off the shelf answer for everything and all that. And it's something that I noticed with everything that you put out there thus far that I've checked out is it comes from a really fantastic depth, you know, and something that you've mentioned with on, on your show is, uh, that you intentionally took off, like, you know, age 20, uh, your 20s, you know, and so you took your 20s off in order to travel and experience, you right. know, and, and the way that you explained it was almost like, it was almost like you had, had, you knew what you were doing, whereas a lot of people, I think we travel and we get into this or that, and then all of a sudden, like, the 15 years ago, I'm oh my God, I, you know, I, you know I, I married a Thailand person and I have a coconut <laughs> shop on the beach. It's like, I don't know how that happened, but it did, yeah, yeah. where it seemed like you were fairly intentional with cr- almost creating a beautiful story for yourself. Like, what was yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, I mean... I don't want to. I don't want to give myself too much credit because I, I'm not sure to what extent I was um, just sort of coming up with a way of framing it. You know, you and I were talking in the first part about how uh, we're naturally lazy as right. organisms, right? Because we're trying to conserve energy. Sure. I'm naturally lazy, and uh, probably more than most people, and. You know, so I was in college, I was studying all this stuff, I knew I was smart, I knew I could get a job and go to grad school and all that kind of thing. And then I had these experiences in Alaska that you referred to in, in part one, and and I, I I just felt like that was the wrong path, that that, sure. that was a path that would lead me into a sort of ego and arrogance and that I was already in danger of, you know? and right. And... You know, there are a lot of things I lack uh, as character, but one of the things I have that I'm very grateful for is that I I do have the inner voice that says, hey, dude, you're going too far in that direction. you got to pull back, right? So I don't really have an addictive personality. You know, I've tried pretty much every drug I, I got anywhere near, but I've never felt enslaved by any of them. And I feel the same way about ambition, about ego, about fame, about money. Like every every one of those things, it gets toxic when you have more than enough. Right. And um, 
so anyway, yeah, yeah, I just felt like, all right, I've only got this one life and it's not about getting rich. It's not about getting famous. It's about, it's about learning, you know, it's about seeing, it's about doing things that challenge my conception of who I am and what reality is. And the best thing I had ever done up to that point, two, two best things I'd ever done up to that point, um, in terms of pursuing that goal were travel and hallucinogens, mm. to be honest. Sure. And uh, so I was like, you know what? I'm going to just keep doing these, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I sewed a bunch of acid into my backpack and I traveled, you know? And um, yeah, so I mean, I don't want to give myself credit, though, because, you know, the way I framed it even at the time was like, well, I'm going to, you know, travel the world and that's how I'm going to learn. And, you know, that'll make me a better adult and whatever profession I end up choosing, I'll be better at it for having done this. And um, so I saw it as an educational uh, pursuit. But to be honest, it also included a lot of lying around in hammocks and you know, riding motorcycles through Thailand and, you know, sitting on beaches and doing like a lot of fun things. I wasn't really working. Um, but yeah, that, that was, you know, I think, I think the combination of, of hitchhiking to and from Alaska from New York, which is a long fucking hitch. Um, the people I met on the way and the, the sort of open-mindedness that, um, I was getting from, the hallucinogens that I was very into in those days really made any sort of materialistic goals seem silly. Right. So something that I see with people, you know, and, and luckily somehow randomly, I have no idea how this took place exactly, but, um, you know, I found something for myself that I can be completely passionate about and earn money. That's amazing. You know, it's it's like, that is so, so rare. I think that you meet somebody and a lot of people, you know, we get to this point where it's like, okay, I know I hate my job, you know, but like, what else is there? You know, I can quit and become like a monk or like join a monastery or, you know, become an Amish person or something like that. But like, we don't have this vision, you know, of it's either, you know, work for the IRS or, you know, be a bum, you know, like, but it's very challenging yeah. for people to find this point, this in-between ground, you know, the, the middle ground of, you know, how for you, I'm curious, cause you went off of a pretty random track of, you know, writing about the evolution of human sexuality, you know, and now you're kind of, you know, putting out another really fantastic idea being the, uh, how do you, how do you call the book again? The Civilized book? to death. Civilized yeah. to death, you know? So it's like, you're putting these really fantastic ideas out and you're being paid for it, you know, and you're being well-respected for it. And, so you know, far. Right. <laughs> Who knows if I'll get paid for another one. Right. You know, but like, uh, so my, my question for you would be, how did you come to a point that things coalesced that it's like, oh, you know what? I can be myself and people will give a damn, (laughs) you know, like, how do you get that? How does other people get that? I see, that's the thing. I can tell you how I got it, but I can't tell you how anyone else can get it because I feel like in a lot of ways, you know, how can I say this? It's like I rejected the other offers before I knew that there was an alternative. Right. So I, I, I knew, I mean, I had a job, you know, in the 80s. I worked in commercial real estate management in Manhattan with this bizarre job. And the only reason I did it 
was because it was so unexpected. It was like I hadn't taken a math class since high school, and suddenly this millionaire was offering me a job managing his buildings in the Diamond District, right? And the reason he wanted to hire me was because I was not a businessman. So it was this bizarre situation. So I did that for a few years. That was amazing and weird and interesting. And um, then I quit that job, and I went to India and traveled in India and, you know, had all these experiences. And... uh, you know, I, I, I sort of backed myself into a corner where it's like, I, I can't have a job. I can't be a normal person anymore. Right. What am I going to do? I don't know. I'm just going to keep traveling, right? You know, and keep thinking. And when I run out of money, I'll get some bullshit job somewhere and I'll make money and I'll teach English or I'll do this or I'll do that or whatever it is. And so I sort of like kept getting by, you know, or I'd come back to the States and get a job and make, save up some money in six months. And then I'd head down to Mexico and then I'd head to Guatemala or I'd head wherever. And, um, it wasn't really a sustainable path that I was on. So again, that's why I'm saying like, I don't want to, you know, look back and say, Oh, I I knew what I was doing all along. I was going to, you know, write a book that was going to be a bestseller. And no, I didn't know that. I knew the one struggle in my life, uh, recurring struggle since I was a kid, involved writing. Because I, I knew I was a good writer, and teachers would often say to me, you should be a writer, man. You, you know, why aren't you working on this? You've got a voice. You've got style. You know, the, I wish I could write as well as you did. I had a teacher in college in tears, actually. Um, that's a long story. But he was like, dude, I've always wanted to be a writer. You could do it. Right. You know, and I rebelled against that because I had pressure from my father who wanted to be a writer and, you know, and, and you know, teachers saying this stuff. And I always felt like like the tall guy that everyone says, you should play basketball. And it's like, right. hey, just because I'm tall doesn't mean I need to dedicate my life to fucking basketball, you right. know. And but I did love reading. I loved literature. I loved the power a story can hold. So I had some idea that maybe someday I'll write, but I don't like writing. I never liked writing. Right. You know, I, I kept a journal and shit, you know, whatever. When I was sitting alone in a restaurant, I'd write my thoughts down. But um, it wasn't something I ever really enjoyed. So, uh, and I rebelled against this idea of people saying you should be writing because I felt like, I again, it's the ego thing, right? I felt like if I'm writing because I can, and therefore I'm looking for recognition, I'm looking for people to, you know, admire me or whatever, that's, that's the wrong reason to be doing this. Right. I should only write when I have something to say, right. something that's worth other people's time to listen to. Right. And I don't right now. I'm just some dumbass 28-year-old, you know, okay, I've traveled around, I've had some experiences, who gives a shit? So, you know, most of the people I meet traveling have been more places than I have, Mm -hmm. and they've got as many good stories as I do. What makes me special, you know? So that that was something I think that informed the whole trip, is like never wanting to be that blowhard asshole who takes some experience and tries to turn it into acclaim or money or fame or whatever, right? right? So... um, you know, you asked, like, how did it lead to this? Well, I I got to the point in my early 30s where I had been teaching English for a while. I was living in Barcelona, and uh, I thought, you know, I want to I get a PhD because at some point 
I want to make a living from my brain and teaching English isn't doing it. And I don't right. want to be teaching English for 20 bucks an hour the rest of my life, you know. Right. But I didn't, I didn't know what to do because I didn't want to get a PhD in literature because then the only gig you can get is teaching in a university and that sucks and I don't want to be a university professor. All the politics, all the bullshit, I'll end up sleeping with my students and get fired anyway. <laughs> so that wasn't a good way to go. And... Uh, but I went to this place called um, Finhorn. You ever heard of Finhorn? No. It, you should check it out, man. It's, you know, Esalen? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. So yeah. Finhorn and Esalen were formed at the same time in 1962. And um, Finhorn is this place in northern Scotland <clears throat> that I had read about in a book called The Secret Life of Plants that I actually... Awesome book. You know the book? Okay. I haven't finished it. I, I've... Oh, well, they talk about Finhorn because Finhorn is this place in northern Scotland. It's right off the North Sea. It's sandy soil, you know, windswept. You know, all the trees are bent over because right. of the winds and all that. But these this hippie couple, not really hippie, the, the guy was a, a World War II fighter pilot, Long story, but his wife started hearing voices and the voices were telling her to sell the house and buy a camper and take off. And the husband, who was kind of a straight dude, was like, well, you know, I love my wife and that's what the voices say. Fuck it. We'll sell the house. We'll get a camper. So they did. And they, they drove. They followed these the directions of these voices that took them to this little campsite off the North Sea in Scotland. And the voices said... This is it. Stay here. And plant a garden. Mm. Like plant a fucking garden. Are you kidding me? Nothing will grow in this stuff. So they plant a garden, and next thing you know, you got these like, you know, cauliflowers the size of basketballs and all these like crazy vegetables growing and all this stuff growing in a place where, you know, the soil was completely inappropriate for growing this stuff, but they were getting all these plants. So then they bought more land and all these hippies started coming and it became this cultural center. And then they ended up buying the whole campsite and then they like people would build structures and all. And it's become this sort of new age center, energy center. And, um, you know, agronomists from all over the world were coming. This is where the idea of talking to your plants or playing music for plants, plants being living things that are reacting to their environment, not just to the chemicals in the soil. This is where all that stuff started 50 years ago. So anyway, I went there and I was hitchhiking around. I didn't have any money. I was sleeping in my tent and I... um, I just wanted to check this place out. So I, I went there and it's right near Loch Ness. So you can, you know, look for the monster while you're there. Right. And uh, I went into this sort of central office area and I was, you know, reading the bulletin board or whatever. And the woman who was working in there and I started talking and um, I told her the story and she was like, oh, you should stick around. You should take some classes, meet some people. And I said, I, you know, I'm, I don't have any money. I'm just traveling around, whatever. I just wanted to see it. And she said, well, listen, uh, here, here's a piece of paper. Here's a pen. Write, just write your story, who you are, why you're here, where you come from, what your life's about. Just, you know, whatever, a couple pages and um, I'll see what I can do. So I did. And she said to come back a little later. I came back and she said, okay, uh, you're in for a week. All expenses paid. Uh, you can't sleep in your tent. You have to stay in the place with everyone else. You know, there's like part of the budget is for, you know, just p- 
people like you who don't, who can't afford it. Right. So I spent a week there and I met all these great people, really interesting people from all over the world. And some of them were psychologists. They had PhDs in psychology, but they weren't like, you know, watching rats run through mazes, which is what I thought you had to do to get a right. PhD in psychology. They were really funky, interesting open-minded people who happen to have a PhD in psychology. So once I saw that, I was like, fuck, you can get a PhD in psychology without giving it up, right? Without right. closing your mind. Cutting and, your balls off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then I was like, all right, that now, that now I'm starting to see a path here, right? And um, so then I go back to Barcelona, and it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'm reading a lot of Andrew Weil's work at the time. Uh, you know who he is? I'm a fan of Andrew Weil, yeah. Okay. So I, I really love this book, The Marriage of the Sun and the Moon. Right. Um, and his people who know him as this sort of, you know, alternative health guru with the big beard, you know, they don't know that his first three or four books are all about consciousness. And he's always been a very um, unapologetic uh, advocate for altering consciousness as a way to gain insight into your own body, your health, your mind, the world, everything. And I really admire that about him, that he became this, you know, later he became, he was on fucking Oprah and he's a billionaire or millionaire, and, but he never renounced hallucinogens or MDMA or mushrooms or any of the stuff that that uh, he was into as a young guy. Anyway, so I was reading a lot of his stuff. And one night I wrote a letter uh, to him and I sent it by way of his publisher. And the letter was basically saying, I admire your work so much and I would like to try to do in psychology what you've done in medicine, awesome. which is to bring, because I've traveled a lot, I've thought a lot about different cultures and different approaches to things. So I'd like to try to bring this multicultural approach to psychology the way you do with medicine, where you say, look, if it's a, you know, if you're in a car accident, go to the fucking emergency room. But if you've got, you know, a chronic digestive issue, you might want to think about Ayurveda or the Chinese approach, you know. So you bring these different cultural perspectives to bear uh, depending upon what the problem is. Right. So I wanted to do that in psychology. And I, so I sent this letter off to his publisher. And um, like a month later, I came home and I had an answering machine and there was a message and I put the, pushed the button. It's like, hey, Chris, this is Andy Weil. I got your letter. Uh, here's my number. Give me a call anytime. Love to talk to you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, first of all, holy shit. Right. Second of all, I didn't give him my phone number. Well, he called Spanish information and got my phone number. Mm. So um, I became friends with him. We, I was in San Francisco a year later, and he happened to be there, and we had dinner. And he recommended, and that dinner, actually, he recommended um, Ishmael, that book by mm -hmm. Daniel Quinn. That's which a book. It's a great book. What the fuck am I talking about? Oh, so he recommended like CIIS, the school in San Francisco, the California Institute of Integral Studies. Um, and so I went, I moved to San Francisco. I took a few classes there and then I, I found out about Saybrook. And what I liked about Saybrook was that I could move back to Spain and still do my graduate degree from there. And it's fully accredited. So if I wanted to live in California, I could, you, you know, have a license and be a licensed psychologist and all that. So I ended up uh, doing my degree at Saybrook. 
And um, I looked at lots of different options for my PhD thesis. I had one of them I spent a year researching before I abandoned it, but then I ended up doing um, my research on human sexual behavior in prehistory. Mm. And again, laziness. Right. Because the other stuff that I was interested in, and I'm, you know, I've spoken about it on, in other places, but um, one of them was involving how language reconfigures the brain. Because I had a girlfriend at the time who was, um, her mother's French, her father's Catalan. She grew up in Spain and she lived in the U.S. as a kid. So her English is fantastic. And we were living in San Francisco together and she was talking to her mother on the phone in French. And then her father got on the phone and she flipped to Catalan. And I, I'm sure I was probably high at the time, but <laughs> I noticed like, like, wow, she's not, that's just not her speaking French and then speaking Spanish. She's different. Different personality, right? Yeah. Sure. And so then I started looking into multiple personality um, disorder and some of the research around that. And I found that some of those people um, with different person, they have different physiological states yeah, that are associated. Changes. Yeah, blood pressure, heart rate. Right. Um, some of them, even some of these studies showed interocular pressure changes. So some personality needs glasses to read and the other sees perfectly without glasses. Mm. So like really bizarre. So then I thought, what if I could demonstrate that people, a person who speaks several different languages from childhood, in those different languages is a different person physiologically. That would prove that language creates psychology in some way, right? That would be a fundamental finding. That would be really interesting. And so I looked at, I was going to do that. Um, but I sort of, there wasn't enough research in multiple personality disorder. And, you know, I was thinking about how to design the studies and all that. But then I got into this other thing where I wanted to study um, doctors who deal with exis- who deal with existential stress because their patients die. So I wanted to look at oncologists and emergency room uh, intensive care physicians. And so I spent a year researching them. And then I realized, like, I don't have the right personality to deal with this all the time, you know? Right. So I abandoned that. And then I, and luckily Clinton got his blowjob and all hell broke <laughs> loose. And I started looking into that. Hopefully he's still getting blowjobs. I feel bad <laughs> for poor Bill. Poor Bill. You know, they tell you power brings sex. That guy got all the power in the world and then got humiliated for one blowjob. Right. Come on. Well, so I think one of the reasons that I'm you know, drawn to your work is, is because I have a similar perspective on things in the sense of like bringing, you know, you bringing kind of life to psychology. You know, I'm wanting to bring that life aspect to self-care and movement, you know, and functionality of how we move around this earth and our bodies. You know, and, and I was talking with Jonathan Baylor the other day on another podcast episode. It's, it's fairly interesting. And, um, you know, one of the things we got into was we actually talked about that study. You know, it was talking about, you know, schizophrenic people when they switch personalities, their, their physiology changes, you know. And my thought with that is if we, our physiology changes depending upon our personality and who we think we are, 
could we do that without being a, you know, quote unquote crazy person? You know, can we, can I one day all of a sudden change my physiological set point, you know, and because I believe that I can, you know, one of the things that I think that you do talking about language that I think is really interesting to just to get to watch is you tell really great stories. You know, I'm sure you, you figure that out, even though you're, you're fairly you know, self, what's that word? Deprivational. You know, you, you, deprecating. You, deprecating. That's yeah. the one, right. You know, you tell really fantastic stories, you know, and, and it's just, I, I'm curious how, one thing, how does that, is that your therapy? I assume it is, you know, and then as well, like how does one develop their voice? You know, cause here, mm. you know, on, on the Align podcast where I mean, I'm always trying to dig for actionable information for people right. of like, how can I be better right now? You know, like what can I do? And I think that in our society, I don't know if you've ever um, read the book Raising Cain, you know, it's about, I haven't read it, but it was mentioned to me by someone just in the last few days. Right. Yeah. The universe. I yeah. guess I should be right. reading it. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so uh, honestly, Raising Cain, I liked it. There's a lot of really fantastic points. You can kind of breeze through a lot of it, though, because it gets into, you know, specific anecdotal stories. But um, it's worth a look. I don't think, you know, you, you kind of get the most of the gist of what they talk about it already, I think. But mm. I think you dig it. You know, but one of the things that they get into with that is we don't raise boys with emotional intelligence. You know, we don't raise boys with the ability to express themselves. You know, right. it's, it's kind of like you are a, you know, a Nancy if you talk about your feelings, you know, and you go to elementary school and most of the teachers are female and you know, it's like, we have to sit in this desk and, you know, you're like, you're like this little pressure cooker, you know, about to blow, you know, and then you don't even know how to talk about how you're feeling because you're a pussy if you do, you know, and it's like, I'm curious how therapeutic has the development of your own language been and is developing your voice something that anyone can do? Do you have any kind of like guidance for like, how does one de develop a voice? That's, uh, that, that's an interesting and complicated question, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think like so many things, you know, there's a, <clears throat> a combination of innate ability and and how your experience feeds that ability. Right. Right. You know, like I look at you, I see someone who is innately very comfortable in their body. And, you know, like I lived in this house. You may have heard me talk about this. I lived in this um, mansion full of fashion models for a few years. Right. And I became good friends with David, who you look a lot like David. He, this guy just... He had this beautiful body. He never worked out, right? He never worked out, but just the way he inhabited his body right. um, made it, um, maintained a very high level of fitness. Right. The only thing I ever saw him, I never saw him do push-ups or anything, but he climbed trees all the time. He would always go on these long walks. Yeah. He... Um, the one thing he did all the time was he had these balls. I don't know what they're called, like yin yang balls or something. But he would like do these poses out in the garden and just move the balls through his hands. <laughs> nice. Like he'd have three of them and, you know, doing this. It sounds like we get along really well. Oh, he was great, you know. And, and you could just see like every muscle in his back and his arms, they were all just tweaking. And it, right. was, it was the way he was conscious of his body yeah. that allowed it to be so healthy, sure. right? Whereas, like we were joking earlier, I feel like my body's atrophied most of the time. You know, like my body, like if I lost a leg, it was like, yeah, whatever, you weren't using it. You know, I just hop through the rest of my life without really having much of a problem. Right. 
Um, but I am hyper aware of narrative structure, I think. And that's just, I think that's a combination of, you know, maybe, like I said, because my dad was into writing and, you know, there's a whole Irish thing about telling stories and all that. But it's also that I fed it by going out into the world and having things happen to me. And I noticed that I kept feeling like shit happens to me in narrative form, right? (laughs) Like shit happens to other people and it's just like, oh, this weird thing happened to me. Whereas the way it happens to me, it's like there's something at the beginning that, that you will circle around to at the end and now you'll understand it. Mm. Right. Which is classic narrative form. Right. It's like introducing, you know, the first act of the play. There's a gun on the table by the third act. Somebody gets shot. Right. Otherwise, why the fuck was that gun there? You know. So I think part of it is is just noticing like the way, you know, we turn everything into stories. And um, I think that probably through all that travel, I sort of got into the habit of packaging my own um, experience as stories, you know, that I tell myself first. Now, the problem with that is I've noticed, and and I have to be honest about this, I've noticed that sometimes I'll tell a story and the person who was there with me will smile a little bit. And occasionally I'll be like, hey, why are you smiling? That's not how you remember it. (laughs) And what they'll always say is like, you're not lying and you're not exaggerating, but you arrange things in the best possible way. Right, you're spinning the story. Yeah, and I'm not really conscious of that. Right. So I have to be really careful, like, you know, when I'm writing that, you know, I, I mean, I am very careful. I don't misquote people or, you know, uh, but like sometimes people will accuse me of cherry picking. And it's like, well, of course you're cherry picking. Everybody's cherry picking, sure. right? You leave out the shit that doesn't seem to matter. Right. And you accentuate the stuff that um, lends power to the story you're telling. Right. That's, that's the scientific process. That's what we all do every day. You're, you know, you're being um, disingenuous if there, something comes to your attention that proves that your story is completely full of shit and you decide to ignore it. That's cherry picking. But as far as just, you know, you know like I, I say somewhere, I don't remember where I wrote something like, yeah, I'm cherry picking, but I've got a big fucking bushel full of cherries here, you know? Right. So just the fact that I'm picking and choosing doesn't mean it's wrong, right. you know, if you get that many cherries. So, yeah, I think it's a combination of just sort of that's the way I see things, right? And I've always resonated with that, which is why I love reading novels and short stories, because they take reality experience and then, you know, arrange it so that its power is increased. Yeah. You know, I mean, I love Joseph. I used to read Joseph Conrad a lot. I don't know if you've read Heart of Darkness or any of his stories. Fantastic writer. And what's so interesting about him is he didn't start learning English till he was 21. Mm. And by the time he was 38, he was one of the most respected novelists in the world. Mm. Fucking mind blowing. Well, one of the things that you had mentioned one time in your podcast, which again, as, as we know from part one of this, I'm, you know, I butcher 
quotes from everybody. Um, but you had said something along the lines of poetry being like a compressed diamond, you know, and it's like, mm. it's, it's the compressed language, you know, and, and, and void of all the superfluous details and just compressed down to that finite perfection, like as, as, as immaculate as it could be, you know, and, and that's not what you said, but you said something like you, you could say it way more fantastic than I did, but, um, you know, and I think that that's such a beautiful thing being able to choose your language and literally choose your story. Like the schizophrenic person that it's like, you know, now my name's Selma. Now my name's Hans. You know, it's like they're spinning their own story for themselves to the point that they believe it. I wonder, you know, and then that affects their biology. You know, I, I wonder, yeah. I wonder for you, do you think that your ability to, to tell your own narrative in a really phenomenal way, you know, as you're living this life, which I do this as well, you know, it's like, I do feel like I'm living a story. You know, one of the things that, that um, I've heard and I've, I've repeated is, you know, like, make yourself the hero of your story. Like, fuck it. Like, why not? <laughs> you know, like, you, you know, you could be the servant. You could be the jesters. Like, I want to be Superman. Like, I, you know, I want to get the girl. I want to, you know, I want all that stuff. Why not? If I'm spinning my own story, like, go for it. You know, shoot for the, shoot for the sun. And even if you miss, you'll end up in the stars. You know, and I, I wonder for you, if you're, ability to kind of narrate your life as you're walking through this woods in the Portland and then you're going to Spain and kind of telling yourself this narrative. Do you think that that has a direct impact on your ability to create a really interesting life? Because, you know, if listening mm, to, point. if listening to, you know, your stories that I listened to on like the Toma, which I think that's an interesting thing as well, because Toma means to drink or to take. And then Toma, the acronym, yeah. the acronym is talking out my ass. So it's yeah. kind of like drinking out of my ass. Um, but, uh, so that's, that's a tangentially speaking podcast. Fantastic. You know, I think it's great, you know, but I wonder if, if your ability to spin these tales as you're actually in, you know, real time walking through life, do you think that that enhances your ability to create interesting situations? That that's an interesting question. Um, I, I don't know if it enhances my ability or if I'd put it that way, I might say that it increases my tolerance for, um, when things don't go the way I want, right. because I recognize that that's where you end up with the best stories, part, yeah. you know? Um, because cause you never know how things are going to turn out, right? And and the whole reason I live in Barcelona is that I got robbed the first night I was there. I was on my way somewhere else. I got robbed. Uh, I met someone who took pity on me, gave me a place to stay. Uh, another guy offered me a job in this English school that they had. And then, uh, this, you know, like one thing led to another. Next thing you know, I'm living in this beautiful city and I spend most of my life there, mm. you know, because I got robbed. Right. Now, if I had if I had had a choice, I would not have gotten robbed. But then what? You know, who knows? I, it, I'm pretty happy with the way things turned out. So I think there is an appreciation for, um, you know, if you are looking at life through that sort of narrative lens, you you never lose your sense of humor or at least you're less likely to because you realize how absurd it all is anyway. Sure. And you're probably more likely to put yourself out into randomness because that's where fun shit happens, right. you know? Totally. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess it does have an enriching quality in that sense. Although, you know, in other ways it probably has uh, the opposite effect because to the extent that you're experiencing your own life 
as the story you'll someday write about it, you're sort of pulling yourself out of it in a way, right? And you're, you're observing it from a distance. So there's that. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Toma. It's funny. I've, I, I think about this a lot because I do those and then I don't do one for like three months or something. And I realize I've got some resistance to it mm. emotionally, psychologically, because, you know, on the one side, it's cool to get those stories out. And, sure. you know, like if I get hit by a bus, at least, you know, someone will have heard that thing. And it's like the family photo album. Kind of. Like yeah. There's, it's there. It exists, <laughs> yeah. you know. But on the other side, I do kind of feel like there's part of me that's like you're either living your stories or you're telling them. And there's, some, you know, and I'm at a time in my life where I'm sort of facing age in a way that I haven't before, which I guess is true of all stages of life. But I think when you get into your 50s, it's different. Like in my 30s, 40s, it's like, yeah, I'm the same. I'm the same. Everything's the same. In, the 50, in my 50s, I start to feel like, yeah, it's not the same. Like, I mean, everything works, but, you know, I don't have like, you know, knee problems or hip problems or whatever. But... Um, you know, I don't have like markers of age that a lot of people have. I don't have kids, so I don't watch the kids grow up. My parents are still alive, so I haven't passed through that, you know, being now I'm the oldest generation, you know. So those sort of classic biological markers I haven't had, which has allowed me to ignore aging. Right. Um, and also I haven't had a job, right? I mean, so I haven't right. like, you know, <laughs> career development or anything. I, so I've just sort of been like disconnected from all those things totally. and which allowed me to ignore getting older, um, quite effectively. Yeah. Um, but suddenly things got serious in the last few years. I think, you know, I, part of it's because of this book, you know, sure. suddenly I wrote this book and like, boom, people what are paying attention. people are paying attention. Shit matters. Right. I've got deadlines. There's money. There are lawyers. There's accountants. I mean, I never, I never made, I never paid fucking taxes until like a few years ago. Right. right? I was completely <laughs> off the map and suddenly it's like I'm running a small business. You know, it's very strange. Right. Um, what the fuck was the question? I'm I don't completely... know. We're, we're converting into tangentially speaking. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I, it's the only way I can speak. <laughs> You've bred your brain for that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true that there's, uh, yeah, it, it cuts both ways for sure. But like getting back to your first question, like what can people do? How can people get out of the rat race and shit? Fuck if I know, man. I just feel like <laughs> I was really lucky, you know, that that, that first of all, that, that I met Casilda, honestly, because... I don't know if I would have even finished my dissertation if I hadn't met her. Right. And, you know, we in relationships, we um, are often attracted to people who embody what we want to be, our ambition for ourselves, right? And you have a mosquito. Just, yeah. Um, you know, I met her. She's a psychiatrist. She's a serious person. She was helping lots of people. She had worked for seven years in Africa and the countryside. She's, you know, she can't even remember how many people have died in her arms, how many babies she's delivered, how many limbs she's amputated. Like, she's dealt with real serious shit, you know? And so when we got together, part of the deal was that she was going to help me get stuff done because I was just fucking around, having a good time, you know, in the model mansion. Sure. And... um so she did. She helped me. I finished the dissertation. And then 
we went and took that trip in Asia I mentioned to you. And, and the whole time I was thinking like, yeah, I could turn this into a book, you know, if, if I'm not completely full of shit, this could be really interesting. Right. And, um, you know, then we got back to Spain and, uh, she got a job and she got up every morning and went to work and paid the bills and dealt with everything to give me time to write the book. Honestly, if I just had a shitload of money in the bank, I probably wouldn't have gotten around to it. Yeah. But seeing her get up and go to work and come home so tired and knowing that she was dealing with really heavy, she was running a mental hospital. Right. So it's like, I got to write this fucking thing. You know, I can't, I can't like, pretend I'm doing something I'm not doing, you know? Right. So, uh, that really helped. And anyway, so the book came out and, you know, it hit, it hit a nerve. And so I'm lucky, but Hey, this next book might come out and people might say, yeah, whatever. That was a one hit wonder. And then I'll be teaching English again. So (laughs) I'm not sure I'm in the position to be giving anybody uh, any sort of career advice, you know? Well, one of the things that you mentioned I think is interesting is, you know, I was just talking with a buddy of mine the other day, and he's like a, you know, well-off real estate agent, whatever. You know, so he flips houses. He doesn't have any passion about it at all, you know, but he makes, makes, you know, more money than I do, you know, just kind of barely doing anything. You know, and one of the things that's, that's interesting is, like, he... He wants to do what I do. You know, he wants he wants to have something that he's passionate about. He wants to have some yeah. kind of thing that he's like, you know, making blog posts and you know, just something that he's like having writing about or making a book or like putting this information out there, whatever it is. You know, but in a sense, he's almost paralyzed in his wealth. Yeah. You know, it's it's very interesting that because, you know, I'm in more of a position where it's like, you know, if people aren't interested in what I'm putting out. I'm not going to eat. You know, my parents don't have any money. Like I'm not, Mm. there's, I don't have that ability. I don't have that safety net, you know? And so it's like, I need to get my shit together or I will die is the way that I feel. (laughs) You know, and I know that's not true. Like I'll, I'll, you know, things there's, there's always food stamps and there's options, but you know, it's like uh, to have that drive, you know, it's almost like it's a, it's a gift in a sense that it's the, the disease of affluency or the yeah. people, people that have that. It's Affluenza. like, uh, yeah, it's like we end up just kind of sitting around. It's like, oh, it's okay. You know, so having that fight, I think it's a really important thing. So people, yeah. people out there, you know, that are there in that position where it's like, well, you know, this guy got to do that because he had all this money in the bank, you know, whatever it is. It's like, I think utilize the stress of your life, you know, or the, your circumstances and actually leverage that into, I got to get this shit done. You know, and, and those are the people that in my experience actually end up being really successful. You know, it's, there's this, some study I saw where it was, um, they were looking at the, the rate of individuals that lost parents before the age of 18, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever it was to like sickness or death or whatever. And, um, turns out a lot of these people end up being really successful, you know, and I'm doing your quotations for that because what the heck is successful mean, you know, but they ended up being overachievers, you know, because yeah. they found out, you know, this stimulus at a young age, the world's not safe. You know, I got to get my marbles together. Like the world is not safe. Yeah. You know, and so that's, that could be a question, but actually I did have a, a question in relation to what you were saying before. It was, you mentioned observing reality versus participating, or maybe I kind of filled those words in, but something along those lines of like, I think people in our reality, we're so, we're bred to watch TV. You know, we are, we are bred yeah, to yeah. observe, right. you know, and that anything that you do, creativity is a muscle, you know, everything that you do, it's all habituation, you know, and so 
what we end up doing in this affluent society where we're, we have the ability to sit on our ass and watch. Yeah. You know, we just look. You know, that is, it's, it's degenerating your ability to participate. Yeah. So when you go to the dance party, you don't know what to do because you've only ever watched dancing. You know, so I think it's so important and observing is super important as well. You know, it's not all participatory because then you end up kind of being annoying. You know, you're like the Labrador, <laughs> like, oh, little, you know, being able to sit back and yeah. watch. You're like, oh, yeah. check out that guy. Oh, how does she carry herself? Oh, yeah. what's the point of all this stuff? You know, I, I think I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, you know, you'd mentioned hallucinogenics and such. What found, you know, assuming that you have a good perspective on the world, which like I, I feel like you do, like I, I respect your, whatever you're talking about. <laughs> I'm like, I'm on board. I think well, it's great. Thanks, yeah. You know, so, so what, how did you find, again, that balance of, of observation versus participation? Uh, yeah. Assuming, assuming there's a balance. I, I mean, I, I think participation yeah, it's it's compl- it's hard to to really <laughs> answer that question because I'm thinking like, you know, I went traveling around the world. Like I I was just bumming around with a backpack for what 15 years or something, and from my perspective, I was observing, right? But from someone's perspective back in the U.S. who never did that, I was participating. Right. Right. Because there I was. I was in wherever the fuck I was uh, most of the time by myself. And but I felt like an observer because I was the guy sitting there alone, you know, at the table in some little village in India or Mexico or Thailand or wherever it was. Um, just watching people and thinking and reading my book and writing in my journal and, you know, so I felt like an outsider, which I was, uh, observing and, and sort of watching the way people were living and, and trying to think about and understand their perspectives. But from, you know, my parents or my friends or whatever, like, wow, that dude's out there doing it, you know? I right. mean, he's sending home these pictures from, you know, there he is in the Ganges and there and he's in this desert on a camel and he's, Facebook's you know? a hell of a drug. Well, this was way before Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Perceived reality. But, and that's another thing. It's like, you know, these days with Facebook and all that, I think people are living their lives as a presentation for others, okay. you know, in yeah. a way that, I mean, the first time I went to India, and, and this is, you know, this makes me sound like I'm a million years old, but like there was no fucking internet, right? I had a little shortwave radio that I took with me. And I can remember being in Srinagar way up in Kashmir in the, in the Himalayas and like turning that thing on at night and sticking the, the antenna up and, you know, going through the shortwave radio and like hearing the BBC, like cricket scores, you know, the BBC, the world BBC. And it's like, Oh, it's in English. Oh, wow. Cool. English feeling some, like, I don't give a fuck about cricket. Right. But just the fact that it was in English, I felt connected to my world that was so far away. Right. You can't get that far away now. Right. Right? Like you got a fucking phone in your pocket. You go to Kashmir now, your mother can email you or send you a text message that you'll get within a second of her hitting those buttons. I mean, I wanted to talk to my mother. I had to go to a post office where they had a phone with an international line 
put my name on a list, sit there and wait a couple of hours till my name came up, then make a call. If nobody was home, I was fucked. All right. If somebody was home, it was like this. You know, call from India. Will you accept your orders? I mean, it was nuts, you know, or like I'd send a letter to my girlfriend back in New York and it would be like, okay, it's going to take a month for this letter to get to her. And then she's going to write back to me. It's going to be another month for her letter to get back to me. So if I give her like a week to write and send her letter, that means I need to know where am I going to be five weeks from now where she'll send it to uh, the post restant, which is like the big box they have at the post office, and you go in and look through all the letters to find one for you. Right. Right? And if I tell her, yeah, write to me in Calcutta, and then I change my plans and I don't go to Calcutta, I'll never see your letter. Hmm. That's a different world. Sure. You know, that world doesn't exist anymore. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's weird, this whole question of participant versus observer. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... You know, and then, like, when I was living with those models in Barcelona, I remember talking with one of the, one of the fashion models uh, where we were having sex, actually, and she insisted that I turn off all the lights. And I was like, are you kidding me? You're like, you are the most <laughs> gorgeous woman I will ever be in bed with. I want to, like, re- I want to see every instant of this. I mean, I'm more interested in watching this than doing it, right. you know, because that's how I'm going to remember. Right. And she was like, well, I, if there are lights on, I can't not see myself from every angle. Mm. And I can't, I, can't, I can't participate. I can't do it because mm. I can't not see myself. It's like, wow. Interesting. Yeah. So there's definitely this trade-off between observing and participating. I wonder what that is where some people really get off on mirrors. You know, some people's like, I can't get off without seeing myself. You know, do yeah. you, you feel like, yeah. do you have any insight on what the heck that is? Narcissism, okay, maybe? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm not one of those people, I'll tell you that. I want the mirror where, like, only the woman appears in it. Sure. <laughs> if someone designs one of those mirrors, like, that just, like, you know, like, pasty white skin is immediate, it becomes right. invisible somehow. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. It's like you make the, you know, you make uh, nasty videos of, you know, you're, you know, having sex or something. It's like, I don't know. Like, can you get that guy out of there? <laughs> well, so another thing that I noticed, this is like totally separate, you know, tangent off the other end. Um, Oftentimes I notice people that are, you know, like hyper intellectual or is like, you know, you look at, at, um, you know, what's his, what's his name? Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. You know, they, it's like from an outside perspective, it's like, whoa, you know, this guy's brilliant. You know, it's like they're going into the rabbit hole. They're pulling the information out and they're expelling it into the world. And the world's getting to, you know, get a part of that experience. And it's like, wow, you know, to be in that guy's mind, you know, and, and <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, I think that it's, it's oftentimes when we meet people that, you know, they do have just this really, you know, deep, profound perspective on things. You know, there's also really like dark end to that as well. Mm. Um, you know, and, and have you ever in your own life had any moments of like, you know, screw it. Like, I don't, I don't, what's, what's the point of all this stuff? Or if it, has it been pretty consistent? Like suicidal tendencies? Kind of, sort of. Not necessarily, yeah, kind of, sort of, yeah. Um, 
I would say suicide is um, definitely on the table for me and always has been um, because I grew up watching my grandfather um, sort of not have the balls to kill himself when he should have. And he was done with life, but he sat around for another 25 years letting his wife and um, his sons, my father and my uncle, uh, and everyone else suffer um, because he didn't have the balls to just get the fuck out. Mm. And so, I mean, I won't get into the details. He was alcoholic. He had diabetes. He refused to stop drinking. And every time we went to visit, he had like you know, more and more of his body was amputated, you know, and then his, his eyesight went and he was mean and bitter and, and he was just a guy who was like done with life, but he wouldn't leave, you know, and growing up watching that, I, at a very early age, uh, had a strong feeling like, um, you know, not only is suicide not, uh, necessarily a bad thing, it can be a very good thing. It can be a dignified and um, honorable and and even generous right. in some cases. Now, I'm not talking about someone who's just suffering from depression or whose girlfriend broke up with them or, you know, whatever little bullshit. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about someone who's in an end-of-life situation or... Um, you know, has some sort of illness that makes living life the way they, what they feel is a worthwhile life impossible. Right. I have no problem with those people checking out. In fact, I, I um, when I was in graduate school, I interviewed for a job on a suicide hotline. Oh, cool. And uh, I got through all the different, you know, interviews and then I went to the big boss and he was like, okay, hey, so you're in the program here. You got your master's and, you, you know, so-and-so you know, likes you. And I think we're pretty good. I, um, the only question I have is uh, can you imagine a situation in which suicide is a, is a reasonable option? And I said, sure. And he was like, oh, well, I'm afraid we can't hire you then. Because <laughs> he's afraid I'm going to be like, go ahead, jump. I would, you know, like, yeah. Right. Um, but, but myself, I've, I haven't, I haven't been in that situation where I felt like I, you know, in other words, I don't, in my own experience, I've never felt, you know, that despondent that I was like, fuck it. I, you know, I went out of here, but I look forward at life and I can certainly see situations arising mm-hmm. with, you know, dementia or, you know, situation. I mean, for example, when I was writing Sex at Dawn, I was having, I remember, it's weird. I remember exactly where I was. I was in this tapas bar in Barcelona with a buddy of mine who's an investment banker. And he's very wealthy. And he's a wonderful guy. We're very good friends. Um, and I didn't, I didn't have any fucking money, right? Like zero. And... Um, but that was my normal situation. You know, I would make money and spend it, make it and spend it. It was, you know, like food, you know, it came in and went out. Sure. And, but I was, you know, 40, late 40s. 
And I remember him saying to me, like, dude, what if, like, what if nobody buys this book? What if this doesn't work? Right. Like, what are you going to do if you're, like, 75 and you don't have any money? Right. And, and you're getting sick and, you know, there's no one to take care of you. And I said, I'll fucking go jump off a cliff. You know, I'll die. Right. Like, and he was like, what are you talking about? You're I was like, yeah, if it gets to that point, I'll fucking die. Because I think what people don't understand is, like, you can always quit. Right. You know? So things don't have to be that bad. If things are that bad, I mean, and reading a lot about, you know, um, pre-civilized people, one of the things I've, I've seen, and, and it's something I'm writing about in this book, is that their relationship with death is very different. Right. Like, death is really not that big a deal. Sure. Um, it's the end, fine. It's the end of what you know, but you don't know that it's the end of everything, and we don't know what comes next. And, and you know, when you're really embedded in the natural world, you see death turning into life everywhere you look. Right. And vice versa. So the fact that you are subject to those same cycles isn't a big fucking surprise. And we live in this bizarre civilization where someone dies, you, you like drain their blood and pump all these chemicals into their body so right. that they won't, you know, decompose. Right. We need to screw up the earth. Right. <laughs> There's always a reason. To exactly. Screw up the earth. Let's, it's like fracking, you know, right. it's like, oh, let's pump some formaldehyde and then put the body in a fucking, you know, hermetically sealed stainless steel casket well who the fuck are you kidding with that you know what oh the worms will never get in here right you know those things explode sometimes i didn't know that yeah because they're they're sealed so tightly the body starts to disintegrate and builds up all this pressure (laughs) the fucking casket will explode jesus that's nice what's um what time are we at because i'm not usually i have like an idea of um probably about 45 minutes okay cool yeah um yeah, so I, I think that's. I mean, we can. Keep was that, that depressing that. as hell? No, that's no. That's it's interesting. I think. Well, that's that's the thing is I, I like talking about on on this show. I like talking about things that people don't talk about. Yeah, you know, and well, so death I, is a big one. It's yeah. a big one. Yeah, man. you know, you look at like cellular apoptosis. You know, it's like cells commit suicide. You know, and we look. <laughs> Thank and we, God, because otherwise right. they turn into cancer. Right. Right. You I know, mean, that's that's, that's what cancer is. It's, it's an interesting thing. It's yeah. like, You know, if you look at this, I think Alan Watts is like one of my favorite yeah. people. If I as a gay man, Alan Watts, he would be, would be going you'd for be, Alan. Oh. You'd be sucking Alan oh, Watts' dick. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I have a friend who is gay who was a friend of Alan Watts. Oh, cool. Stanley Krippner. I, I don't think they ever had sex, but Stanley hung out with Alan on nice. his houseboat. Wow. Yeah. I mean, just, bit, so just yeah. listening to, and that's another person, like Alan Watts is a person that I would expect to have gone down some like dark lanes as well, you know, maybe not, you know, but I just think that to have that appreciation for positivity, you know, and have that appreciation for just like, what's the point of getting this interested in reality, you know, unless you've been to some other interesting realms of it. Yeah. You know? And, but so, so with that, I think it's really important that we do have these conversations. We do talk about death. We do talk about homosexuality. We did not to relate death to homosexuality. <laughs> You know, but we talk about these things that are like considered taboo in our culture. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. You know, I think that like comedians is a similar situation where it's like, well, you can't talk about this. You can't talk about that. You know, what you're doing is you're just, you're feeding energy to that thing. Yeah. You know, and so if you don't want people to use drugs, the best thing you can do is talk about drugs. You know, if you, if that's what you, if you right. really genuinely want people to not be smoking meth or whatever, it's like, let's talk about it. You know, let's institutionalize yeah. and actually like, let's get people good meth. Well, just, you know? just look at, you know, like pregnancy rates in Holland versus the U.S. You know, Holland where 
contraceptives are available in school. They have reasonable conversations with kids. They're, they're not talking about how sex equals death and you're going to get STDs and you're going to die. Like, hey, you love someone, you have an affection for someone. Yeah, you can be sexual with them. In Holland, if a 15-year-old girl has a boyfriend, you know how the parents typically respond to this? Nope. Invite him over for dinner. He's a good kid. They obviously like each other. He can spend the night. Mm. That's it. That's how they deal with these things. So compare that to America, where you have to pretend nothing's happening and, you know, kids aren't sexual and all this bullshit that we're, you know, forced to pretend we believe. Right. Uh, STD rates, way higher here. Teen pregnancy rates, off the fucking chart compared sure. to Holland. So it's exactly what you're saying. The best way to deal with things is to talk about them openly. Right, you know? be educated about yeah. them. I mean, I look at Hunter S. Thompson... I don't. What I don't like about the way he died is that he, he, someone else had to clean that shit up. Sure. You know, he shot himself in the head at his writing desk. Now it was his house. He has the right to do what he wants. But uh, I don't think your your son should have to find your body. That that's why you know when I think about it, selfish. I think. Yeah, and and I think he was despondent. You know, he was ill. Doing this to you almost. Which I'm not by any means putting that on him, but at the same time, you are putting it in their face. You're forcing someone else to clean this shit up. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, he lived in the Rocky Mountains. It seems to me he could have gotten in a car and drove somewhere and, you know, jumped off a cliff and right. somebody probably would have cleaned that. I always imagine, like, you know, going to like Ireland or, or Galicia or someplace, you know, with waves crashing on rocks 100 feet below. That's where you go. Let, you know, become fish food. You know, right. nobody cleans it up. It's no problem. That that's a uh, uh, to me. There's some dignity in that. Right. <laughs> Another thing that um, that you get into that I think is really interesting is is the dynamics of families. You know, and so you know, like hunter gatherer tribal societies, it's more you know great like we we brought a child into the culture like this is fantastic right you know what, what great news you know but in our you know our uh, nuclear families that we've that we've established here i think the potential to pass on toxic thoughts is significantly higher you know we end up in in our reality it's like if your dad's a whack job like good luck you know and no one from the and i have this experience mm. you know where it's like so there's sometimes where it's like I'll see a baby like I don't I don't know sitting out in the sun or something. It's just like I don't know if that's a good idea, you yeah. know, or you know whatever it is. You know, or just yeah. there's so many different things. Like I don't think children, and I'm by no means of an expert in this realm, but you know I think it would be way more fantastic for kids if we carried our kids around. You know, if oh. kids actually had to utilize no their question. core stabilizers. You yeah. know, if kids actually had, they were able to crawl around the ground more. They were able to eat dirt. They were able to really expose themselves. You know, yeah. develop their microbiome, develop their neuromuscular capacity. You know, just to really integrate themselves into this world but what we end up doing is we end up you know sheltering again you know isolar you know it's like the spanish word isolar we talked about in that part one you know it's like we're insulating and we're isolating these individuals yeah you know and that is the foundation of i think you know various different you know psychoses you know and yeah, it's like that yeah. it weirds you out <laughs> you know when you put yeah. somebody in a box that's the worst thing you can possibly do yeah you know it's it's just it's very interesting that we've somehow chosen that over time you know versus bringing you know, we brought a life into the world let's all take care of it yeah you know it's i uh, do i mean it, it, i hate to keep harping on this book but i, I don't uh, that's the thing i don't think we've chosen it mm. i think that these things feed into 
the agenda of the organism that we're now embedded in civilization. Sure. You know, just like Americans don't choose to be warlike and aggressive. Right. But if you grow up in America, you you know, you see those jets fly over the stadium before the Super Bowl. Right. You, you know, see the soldiers saluting the flag before every fucking game that the NBA plays and the, you know, all the sort of rituals around, you know, we call these, everybody who's worn a fucking uniform is a hero. Right. You know, what the fuck? Right. It's all bullshit, right? <laughs> but it's, it's normal life in America. And if you don't have that sort of multicultural perspective that you can only get by leaving, yeah. it just seems like normal to you, you know? So just like, you know, having a baby, oh, we'll let the baby cry itself out, you know? That's normal. Put the baby in a little cage. Sure. Um, you know, roll the baby around in a little, you know, $500 fucking piece of contraption right. as opposed to a sling and stick it on your back where it wants to be. Right. You know, these things are just normal. And so, you know, it's both good news and bad news. I think from my perspective, I don't see anyone choosing this. I see like this sort of cultural momentum that drags us like you know like the birds in the flock don't no individual bird is choosing where that flock goes right but somehow you just go with the flock you know sure. there's something that happens there's an emergent um an emergent agenda there somehow so yeah it's it's interesting i don't know where it's all going um but i think that the kind of work you're doing is really important because it's it's you know, we're at this moment where it's like somehow we're, we're all fish in this salmon in this giant school. And it's, we know, we know we're going toward nets. Right. Right. Like we can see the nets up there, but, but we've got this momentum that's leading us toward the nets. And somehow individual salmon among us have to say, fuck, no, it's the wrong. Don't right. go there. Those are nets. You know, we know what nets do. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's fucking fracking and, you know, all this bullshit and getting away from the body and getting away from the wisdom of our ancestors. Yeah. It's a tough, it's a tough fucking road. But somebody, you know, somehow we are, as we approach the nets, it's interesting that we are also able to see them. You know, you can't see the nets till you get close to them, right? Sure. So we get close, we see them, now it's the moment of truth, right? Do we turn or not? And so I think you're right. Technology is, there are all sorts of problems with it, but the, if we use it correctly for things like podcasts, it liberates us. Like, we, you can say whatever the fuck you want, <laughs> go home, stick it on your computer, right. and people can listen to it, and right. nobody can stop you. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty cool. And it's interesting with the looking at the net, and we'll wrap up here really quick, but looking at the net, you know, if you ever learn how to, like, race a car or a BMX bike or anything like that, you know, the one thing you do not want to do is you do not want to look at the obstacle that you don't want to run into. Because mm, <laughs> it'll pull you toward it'll it. It'll pull you directly yeah. toward it, yeah. you know? And that, I think that's something that we're doing. It's like fear peddling on, on ABC News or Fox News or whatever. It's like oh, if we inundate individuals with enough of this information, you know, where it's like it just becomes your brain. You know, Osama bin Laden and, you know, all of this, all the enemy the terrorist you yeah. know fear you know it's right. just like 
That all could be bullshit. I'm not saying it is or isn't because I don't know enough about the topic to have a strong opinion on it, you know, but it's like... Well, it is. I mean, mean, uh, on the level of how important it is to your individual life, it is bullshit, right? More Americans have been killed, including 9-11, more Americans have been killed by homegrown terrorists than by any evil Arabs, you know? But you're right. I mean, it's it's all about what sells, what pulls in attention, and you know what sells the uh, advertising minutes. Sure. Yeah. Then the most important question that I have, which this is the only question that I had like preconceived before oh, this, boy. I was like, uh, so you were at the uh, the Deepak Chopra Richard Dawkins thing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. firstly, who do you think yeah. would win a fist fight between Richard Dawkins and Deepak <laughs> Chopra? Because I think it'd be a good fight. fight. That's funny. <laughs> and then the other I'd one, I'd pay is, to see that. Oh actually. heck yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the other th- the other part is like, who's whose side were you on for that? And people can check it out on YouTube if they're interested. Oh God, yeah, Cassie and I were at that with Rich. I was sitting next to Robert, Robert Sapolsky, Sapolsky actually. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, that, that's a hard one because, uh, for, for uh, if there's anyone out there who doesn't know what that was about was, uh, Richard Dawkins, of course, is the sort of uber atheist, um, considers himself to be very rational scientist, et cetera. Deepak Chopra, you know, lots of woo woo, um, spiritual, quantum nonsense. (laughs) So the... I guess that's the answer. (laughs) Well, but see, here's the thing. Look, I, I, you know, I think that what happened was they have this conversation and they're speaking two completely different languages. Right. So um, Richard Dawkins um, alienated the audience immediately. Because um, Deepak Chopra said something, I don't remember what it was, blah, blah, blah. And then Richard Dawkins says, how many of you understood what he just said? And right. like half the audience raised their hands and he said, well, you're all liars. Right. Because what he just said made no sense at all. It was all bullshit. Right. So, okay, that's a bad move yeah. rhetorically. Okay, and this is a guy who should know better, right? So, okay, he alienates half the audience immediately. And then he, um, his body language through the whole thing was one of an exacerbated, exas, ex, is exacerbated, no, exasperated, mm. um, like humorless old fuck. Sure. And Deepak Chopra's body language was of a relaxed, friendly, good sense of humor right. guy who's just sort of having a laugh. Now, the thing is, if you read a transcript, you would say, well, Richard Dawkins made sense and Deepak Chopra didn't. But if you're sitting there watching, you say, he's a nice guy. He's an asshole. Right. So the question of who won is really hard to say because it depends what game we're talking about because there are lots of different games going on there. Right. And, and the problem is, I mean, I think Deepak Chopra's full of shit, but I think that Richard Dawkins is full of shit, too. Because I think, and this gets back to some of the things we talked about earlier, belief has power. Even if the thing that you believe in is not factually true, um, you know, the the fact that it has um, measurable effects is true. So hypnosis is true. Hypnosis, not for everyone, but for people who have hypnotic ability, 
um, you can do amazing things with hypnosis. Right. Now, nobody knows how the fuck it works, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't work, right? right? Nobody knew how aspirin worked until 30 or 40 years ago, and people have been taking it for centuries, willow bark, right? right. Um, so I think that in science, there's a problem with um, conflating understanding mechanism with accepting the reality. Sure. And I think Richard Dawkins is missing that point that, you know, people who have a strong belief in God, that whatever, however they define God, whether it's the God of the clouds or the, you know, Old Testament God or whatever it is, that belief can have um, predictable, measurable effects on their immune response, yeah. on their healing ability, on their relationships, on their sense of community, and all sorts of very tangible parts of their lives. Right. And so by just saying, oh, it's all bullshit, he's missing uh, some really important stuff there. Sure. So I don't know. I've, I've responded to your question, but well, not answered it. Yeah. <laughs> well, so from my, my perspective on it, you know, I feel like they both... It's interesting. Once you call somebody an asshole, you've officially ended any potential negotiation yeah. you know there, there's it's no longer a discussion it's yeah. purely defensive ego yeah you know and so it's like okay i'm an asshole no you're an asshole you yeah. know and that's kind of the way it went which is that was you know kind of interesting but inherently i feel like they weren't saying anything that was like too overly different really you know mm -hmm. there was like a stopping point that richard dawkins kind of stops that where it's like it's science and then deepak's like well it's more than that you know and yeah. i agree with science as well but it's i think that it was just a really interesting discussion. More watching like the dynamics of the discussion, yeah. you know, even more than what they were really talking about. Yeah, so, anyway. yeah. Well, and also, I mean, the thing is, there's, you know, like there, there's a lot of um, pressure to stake out a position and stick to it no exactly. matter what. Yeah, even if you're wrong, it's like, well, exactly. I already said that I, that's right. my, my, now it's like I'm defending Richard Dawkins. Yeah. You know, I'm not even defending the idea anymore. Yeah. I am the idea. And that's what I think we need yeah. to let go of. And also, if you lose sense of humor about something, you've sort of lost me. Right. You know, as a, I mean, if, there, if there's no fun, if, the, if there's no laughter involved, then I don't really think there's going to be much wisdom there. Sure. You know, ultimately. Well, so thank you so much for all this. This is awesome. Like, oh, I really yeah. genuinely mean that from the bottom of my heart. Yeah. And um, how do people find you? And uh, you have a new book coming out, Sex at Dawn. I think it's a fantastic book. Like, like I said, I'm like, I'm fully subscribed. Anything that you're putting out there, I'm, you know, I greatly, greatly appreciate <laughs> it. Unless you, start, unless you start getting, you know, whatever. I don't know, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> but if, so if far, get whatever. If you get whatever. I, so far. I'm planning to get so whatever. Far, so far. I'm on board. <laughs> right, you know, so right. But I'm on notice, right? Yeah. Don't take right. it for granted. Uh, ChrisRyanPhD.com is my website and everything's there. The podcast is there. The books are there. Interviews. I think there's a picture of me with Richard Dawkins. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> awesome. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much yeah. for coming on. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Align Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I greatly appreciate your comments and your shares in iTunes. They determine the ranking and the visibility of the show, and they make me smile. So I look forward to reading those guys. Be sure to check out the website, aligntherapy.com. That's A L I G N therapy.com. On there, you can find my blog. You can find 
and this podcast, more information about the topics and the, and the uh, guests that we've had on the show. You can find hundreds of absolutely free instructional videos on self-care, functional movement, how to get strong, how to get fast, how to get exactly what you want out of your body. You can check out the online coaching where we work, how, work out how to optimize your movement practice so that you can live optimally and pain-free for the rest of your life. As well, be sure to check out the self-care kit where it is as small enough to fit underneath the seat in your car. And it's like a physical therapist and massage therapist all wrapped up into one package. I know you guys are going to love the website. I know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of it. And I look forward to hearing your comments. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening. And remember to join the movement by subscribing to the podcast. If the information has been helpful, please share and leave your comments in iTunes. Aaron personally reads each one and it makes all the work worthwhile. Together, we will make a difference and continue to bring more powerful and inspiring messages to the world. Align Podcast.